Happy New Year. Thank you, thank you. Today is, after all, the first day of the new year. You're aware of that, right? The first day of the, of the Christian year. Advent starts the new year, according to the church calendar. Um, in the Old Testament, we had a very regulated uh, calendar of feasts and festivals. Uh, day of Atonement, Passover, uh, Feast of Booths, all of those things. Those things, of course, were commanded in Scripture with a very strict observance of those things. But some over the centuries have adapted a similar approach uh, to the Christian church year and calendar, uh, marking the passing of time with different seasons like Advent, uh, Lent, Easter. Now, those seasons aren't spelled out as specifically in Scripture as, uh, as the Old Testament Jewish calendar was. And so they're not, their observance isn't commanded. I can't uh, force you to do that. But I think they can still be a helpful tool. They can still be useful, if we don't get legalistic about it, to help us tune our hearts and our minds and our attention uh, to the Lord Jesus. And so here we are, the days leading up to Christmas, which we call Advent, uh, specifically, Advent would start today, the fourth Sunday before Christmas, and it would lead all the way up to Christmas Eve. Advent uh, comes from a Latin word that literally just means coming or arrival. And so when we speak of Advent, when we light candles on an Advent wreath, we're thinking about, we're remembering, we're commemorating the arrival, the coming of Christ. And so we should think about some themes along those lines. Well, what types of themes are, should be in our hearts and our minds during Advent? Well, uh, there's a sense of waiting, right? Waiting for that uh, arrival, of, of longing, of yearning, a sense of uh, expectation, and hopefully even a sense and, a, and an awareness of, of preparation, of being prepared for Christ's coming, His arrival. Now, one important thing to keep in mind when we talk about Advent, this yearning and longing for the coming of Christ, we're talking about two arrivals. We're talking about two Advents, and we're actually living in between the two right now. So, so the first Advent was when Christ came, past tense, when he was born to the Virgin Mary uh, that starry night in that seemingly unimportant town of Bethlehem. And so part of our Advent observance looks back. But another part, a really overlooked part many times, is looking to the future of when Christ will come again. And, and this time, not in humbling condescension, where he set aside his glory for a time, and he suffered at the hands of sinful men. No, the second coming, he'll come in all of his glory, and he'll vindicate himself, and he will reign over sinful mankind, and he will execute judgment. Those are the two advents of Christ, and we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of the two. Now, hopefully, by God's grace, we'll be doing all of those things that I mentioned earlier, waiting, longing, there will be a part of our heart that's just yearning 
that, that feels a, a bit of an emptiness and says, oh, this, this isn't it yet. This isn't right. This isn't complete. It's not, it's not done yet. There should be an expectation, and, and of course, there should be a preparation. Rejoicing that he came, but rejoicing in hope that he's coming again. Now, part of what God has ordained in our worship, in all of our worship, regardless of the season or, or the day, is that we should sing. We should sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And Advent is no exception. The songs and the hymns of Advent, they're useful, they're instructive uh, in, our, in our learning and in our worship. And this Advent, what I want us to do is look at four different hymns of this season. Songs that we sing in our longing and in our waiting and in our expecting. And so this Sunday, I want to start with what will be the most popular of the four hymns, the one that you'll know the best, and that's O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It comes from a seven-verse poem that dates back to the 8th century. So this thing is old. Our brothers and sisters in Christ, the saints who've gone before us, have known about this for a long, long time. A metrical or a, or a singable version of that poem with five verses dates back to the 13th century. And each of those five verses focused on a specific name given to the Messiah. And you'll see that when we get into this. Um, now, with any popular hymn, down through the years, there's going to be some changes made to the verses, right? Uh, and we can really see that if we were to open up our hymnals and look at hymn number 123. That hymn is down to four verses, and so it, it omits three of the originals and it adds in, in two others. And that just happens with, with hymn writing and, and different traditions and, you know, throughout lots and lots of time. But this morning what I want to do is, is use the version found in the Trinity hymnal. It kind of preserves those more original five verses, those more original five names given to the Messiah. And I really wanted to use that one. I, that's the one we've printed in the worship folder for you. Because those five names for Messiah, and even kind of the order that they're given, really helps flesh out the gospel. It really helps tell the story of our need for Messiah to come and what he had to do when he came, which is very much what we've been doing in the Gospel of John all along. So this morning, here's what I want to do. I want to go through the hymn verse by verse. They're, they're printed for you in your sermon notes. And I want to explore some of the biblical background of this hymn because, y'all, good hymns are just little biblical summaries they, they capture the essence of Scripture. They capture the essence of a lot of different Scripture, right? Good hymns. You can tell right away. The best hymn writers, man, they knew their Bibles backward and forward. You come across a hymn from a good hymn writer, and your mind instantly goes to a dozen different places in the Scripture. And you think, oh, I know where that's coming from. Oh, that reminds me of this verse over here in Romans, or, or this verse over here in, in Isaiah. And O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is certainly no exception. In fact, it's got probably even more scriptural background than the average good hymn. In, in the process of studying for this sermon, of really digging into this hymn, I looked up 80 different passages of scripture that are tied to this hymn in one way or another. 
And so this morning, one by one, I'd like to look at all 80 of those passages. No, No, I narrowed it down greatly. Just a handful, just a handful. So verse by verse through the hymn, and a few verses along the way, a few passages along the way that help unpack the themes that are here, these names of Messiah that are so important, and hopefully along the way, the, the sort of the what's the big deal about all this? Why is this important to us? Why is this useful to us, not just in Advent, but in all of our days living and resting in the gospel of Jesus? So verse 1, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And so obviously our name for Messiah here is Emmanuel. It's the name that was prophesied in Isaiah 7, right? Uh, The virgin will give birth, and you're going to call him Emmanuel. And then Matthew in his gospel in the first chapter, he spells that out for us, and he says why he's going to be called Emmanuel, because Emmanuel means God with us. Now, the themes here are important because they set the stage for the rest of the hymn. There's this idea of captivity, captivity of God's people and the mourning that results from being held captive, right? And that's not an isolated theme or event in Scripture. There's many places we could turn in Scripture to look at that but certainly chief among those places would be the captivity of God's people in Egypt, right? And you read about that in Exodus 3, printed there in your worship folder. The Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, before we go too much further, I want to point something out to you. This hymn, all these Advent hymns, and the season itself, in a very real sense, is about more than just a historical event. It is that, But it's so much more because what we have being uncovered and put on display for us so richly and so beautifully is the character of God. That's what we see again and again and again. This is a God who sees the affliction of his people. This is a God who hears their cries. If you're his child, he sees you. He hears you even this morning. He knows. He knows exactly where you are. He knows what kept you awake last night. He knows exactly what you're facing. And that gives us great reason to to join in the refrain of this great hymn. Right? That gives us great reason to rejoice, to rejoice knowing that He's coming. He sees you, and He will come to you. It's what He does. It's because of His, because of his character. It's because of who He is. Now, because of this captivity, God's people need a ransom. 
a price is going to have to be paid to secure freedom for God's people. And that's, if there, if there had to be one theme assigned to this hymn, there are multiple things, but if there was one overriding theme of this hymn, it would be this need for ransom. And folks, that's ultimately what this season is about too. That's ultimately what Advent is about and why Christ had to come. If the story of Christmas that you're hearing, and hopefully the one that you're telling, doesn't draw a straight line from the babe in the manger to the Savior hanging on the tree, then you've not gotten to the heart of the story. You have missed what we're talking about here. two places in the prophet Isaiah. Uh, One deals specifically with this idea of ransom, and then a second one sort of ties all of this together really, really nicely of of the captivity and the ransom in the morning. Uh, Isaiah 35.10, the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. That's what happened in the rescue from Egypt that day. Sorrow and sighing fled away because of the ransom. They were replaced with joy, being bought, being purchased out of captivity. That's at the heart of the gospel, y'all. The other place that the prophet Isaiah really captures all of these themes together and ties them together so beautifully is in Isaiah 61. These first three verses. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. To grant to those who mourn in Zion to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning. And there it is again, ransom for the mourning captives. Now, verse 2 in this hymn is an important link. It has a foundational element to it that's essential in our understanding of the gospel and our understanding of why Messiah had to come. The name referenced here for Messiah is Adonai, which in English we translate Lord. Right? O come, O come, thou Lord of might, who to thy tribes on Sinai's height in ancient times didst give the law, in cloud, and majesty, and awe. And so if you think about the giving of the law, and you could turn and you could look at Exodus 19 and 20 for a good summary of all that happened there. Y'all, there's, there's cloud for sure. Oh, there's majesty and there's awe. There's lightning, there is smoke and thunder. This is a terrifying event for God's people. It's something forever seared in their memories. They were afraid in that moment of God speaking directly to them. They knew that God was speaking, and they begged Moses, oh, please don't let him speak directly to us. They knew it might be their undoing. 
You go talk to him, and then you come back and tell us what he said. And that's exactly what happened. They were terrified to hear directly from the Lord. But it is vital that they did hear from him. Directly, indirectly, however, they needed to hear from him because he was revealing his character and his will in giving the law. His giving the law was just as much a part of his self-revelation as his taking on flesh and and coming as the God-man, as the Messiah. And we need both of those things. We need his revelation of his character and his will in the law. We need, for sure, his revelation by taking on flesh. We need both of those things if we're going to be ransomed out of captivity. Now, the third verse is the meatiest of the three verses. There's so much going on in verse 3. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free, thine own from Satan's tyranny, From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory or the grave. Right, so the name for Messiah here is this rod of Jesse. And some of the English translations of of our scriptures uh, might say the shoot that comes from Jesse or the branch of Jesse. And so here we've got a little bit about where Messiah's coming from. Who's he going to be? Whose descendant will he be? Well, he'll be a descendant from Jesse's son, David, which comes straight from Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot, says the ESV, from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Now, this is a prophecy that Isaiah is giving that's not very glamorous. It's hopeful But it's not glamorous at all. It's a pretty dire, negative situation that's going on. We're talking about a stump of a tree. The the tree has been devastated. It's long gone. And all you see is a stump, and you think, well, there's nothing happening there. This story is over. Until there's this stubborn little glimmer of hope that appears And you've seen that happen before with this stump that looks completely dead and kind of sideways shooting out of it. There'll be this little green glimmer of hope. And you say, wait, not done yet. Here's a sign of life. And that's what we have going on here. A very dire situation, right? Satan's tyranny, hell, the grave. And when you read through the Scriptures what you begin to see is that the captivity God's people are suffering under, the ransom that we all desperately need, goes well beyond any physical capture. The big problem here is not external and physical. The problem is internal and spiritual thinking through this hymn and and all of these passages and thinking especially about verse 3 and and the nature of the captivity that we're talking about here. I thought about another, I I guess it would be a modern day Advent hymn or song uh, written by a guy named Andrew Peterson. We've done some of his songs here before. But here's, here's what he writes, and this captures it well. Here's the captivity we're all dealing with. It's the captivity they were dealing with too. Our enemy... Our captor 
is no Pharaoh on the Nile. Our toil is neither mud nor brick nor sand. Our ankles bear no calluses from chains, yet, Lord, we're bound. Imprisoned here, we dwell in our own land. Our sins, they are more numerous than all the lambs we slay. Our shackles, they were made with our own hands. Our toil is our atonement and our freedom yours to give. So Yahweh, break this silence if you can. The real captivity the Israelites needed freedom from, the real captivity you and I need freedom from, is from sin and death. Think about it from this verse. What is Satan's tyranny? What what does he hold over our heads? It it goes back to verse 2 of the hymn, right? The law. Satan holds our failure to perfectly obey the law that was given. He holds it over our heads. We're guilty. We're guilty. And he wants us to know it. He wants us to feel that condemnation. He wants us to feel it even after we've been freed from it. He wants us to be trapped in that sense of guilt and condemnation even when it is long gone. We need to be freed from that tyranny. We also need freedom from the captivity of the consequence that comes from our sin and death and that uh, from the consequence of failing to obey the law which is death and hell. We need a ransom from that type of captivity. We need a price to be paid by our Messiah that will free us from Satan holding that failure over our heads. We need a redeemer to take that consequence for us to suffer it in our place the consequences of death and hell Isaiah knows that that is the work of Messiah Isaiah 25 and look at the image of this here this is rich he will swallow up death forever how do you swallow something You, you you take it inside yourself That's what Messiah did. Messiah just didn't bat it away and say, oh, death, be gone. Right? No. He swallowed it up. That's why it's gone forever for the child of God. Because he swallowed it up himself. He suffered it in our place. Paul celebrates what Jesus has accomplished in doing this in 1 Corinthians 15. uh, This famous passage, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, he's taunting death now. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, this Messiah who has come to swallow it up for us. Verse 4 of our hymn. O come, thou day spring from on high, And cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark shadows put to flight. 
So, so this name for Messiah, day spring, is, is a sun, a, a star that rises in the morning. Malachi, the prophet, uh, tells us about a, a son of righteousness, is in Malachi 4. A son of righteousness that will rise with healing in his wings. We sing about that too, don't we? In Hark the Herald Angels Sing. If ever there was a scripture-soaked hymn writer, it was Charles Wesley, who was just, you know, bleeding and oozing scripture all over the place. This, this son of righteousness that rises with healing in his wings, that's this day spring, this morning star. Uh, Luke 1, where our call to worship this morning came from, uh, that, those are the words of Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, and he's prophesying about the work of his son in preparing for the work of our Messiah. And so toward, toward the end of his words, toward the end of what he's saying about, here's what my son's going to do, and he's paving the way for what Messiah's going to do. So toward the end there of Luke 1, verses 78 and 79, is referring to what Messiah's going to do. He says, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, that's the day spring, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Peter, Jesus' disciple, also understood Jesus' work as Messiah, his identity as Messiah in terms of a day spring or a morning star. In 2 Peter 1, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. All Malachi was talking about and Isaiah was talking about and Jeremiah and all of these, we've got that word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's where Emmanuel is coming. That's what it means for Jesus to be a day spring, to come. Uh, and we've already seen in John's gospel how he comes as the light, right? He says, I'm the light of the world. And he's revealing who the Father is. He's revealing His grace and His glory and His mercy and His love. That's what our day spring is doing. And so thinking about His drawing nigh, to use the, the language of this verse, right? His advent, that's what that means. Thinking about His advent should definitely cheer us, right? Because I hope that you're seeing from all of these different places in Scripture and the verses throughout this hymn, a full picture beginning to emerge of why it is that Messiah had to come and what it is that he had to come and do. And Jesus sums it up himself, recorded in Mark's Gospel in chapter 10. This is Jesus talking about his own purpose. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus knew that's what he was doing. Jesus knew that's what his purpose was, why he would have to be Emmanuel, God with us, why he would have to be the day spring, why he would come as this rod of Jesse. And finally, this last verse in our hymn this morning. O come, thou key of David, come, open wide our heavenly home. Make safe the way that leads on high and close the path to misery. So one last name, this key of David, which is, of course, another reference to his lineage. But it's also a reminder, it's, it's an indicator of his authority. Oh, he's got the key. 
He's got the key. We've seen all that he needs to do as Messiah, all that he has to do. Can he do it? Can he pull it off? Will he be successful? Does he have the power to do what's necessary? Isaiah 22, he tells us well in advance. You better believe it. I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. And he shall shut and none shall open. He's got the authority, folks. He's got the power to do everything it is that he needs to do. Uh, John also picks up on this theme from Isaiah in his revelation that he receives. Uh, Revelation 3 and these letters that are being written to the churches to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. And then he also, while he's there in Revelation, at the very end, right? So we've seen it's, it's throughout Scripture. It's a, it's a great little biblical summary in this hymn. John begins to tie some of these things together for us in the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22. Jesus is speaking. He says, I've sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And he leaves us at the end of all these many scriptures with great reason for rejoicing and hope. Hope, honestly, that we really need. Because remember, we're living in between the times of the two Advents, right? He came, and He's coming again. But in between, we're still living very often in paths of misery. There from that last verse, verse 5 of this hymn, right? Things are not yet like they're supposed to be. There's still much pain and much sorrow. Many of you are dealing with it right now. Many of you are walking through it right now, waiting for the Lord to to hear your cries, to see your affliction, to come. And we are rejoicing right now in the middle of those two comings of Jesus, rejoicing in hope that He will come. We're longing for His coming. We're yearning for it. By God's grace, we're expecting it with hope. And that'll give us the ability to say with John, the next to the last verse recorded in Scripture, he who testifies to to all of these wonderful things that we've seen about our Messiah, surely I am coming soon. And so what is our response in that but to say, amen, come Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Oh, Emmanuel, how we praise you this morning that you are God with us and that you are Emmanuel at great expense to yourself and great benefit to us. Would you indeed come again this morning? Come through the power and the presence of your very Spirit into our hearts this morning, some for the very first time that have never known their need to be freed from the captivity of sin and death and to know that you offer such freedom. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, come. Ransom your captives this morning. 
free us from Satan's tyranny. Don't allow him to hold guilt and condemnation of our past failures over us any longer. Free us from besetting sin and from temptation therein. Give us by your grace the great hope that you are coming again. Let that shape and reorient all of our days. We ask in Jesus' name, our Emmanuel. Amen.